Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 22nd, 2016, and this is episode 1771 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, since it's Friday, 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 it's time for the Monster Show of the Week. That is the Expert Council Q&A Show. And let me tell you what I got up for you today. I have a question for Gary Collins. For you guys out there that have plateaued in your workouts and your conditioning, how do you naturally increase testosterone without relying on you know, synthetic hormones? Because that's getting to be a really big thing in medicine today. And Gary's going to tell you the right way to do it and why you should avoid those things at all costs. Um, definitely a survival topic because if you're concerned about your health, you're going to see the doc. This is getting to be like every other pharmaceutical thing out there. Once they kind of find a market for it, they just start pushing it. Remember, the goal of the pharmaceutical companies is to have everybody in the country medicated. That's the only way they can grow. If you want to grow in, in strength and you want to maintain that strength as you get older, guys, testosterone is a big part of that, and there are natural ways to handle it. Next up, Jeff Lawton's going to talk to us about using swales in very, very flat land, like 2% grade in the Texas desert. And will it work, and does it work, and what can you do, and how should you do it? Uh, to be able to grow things in the desert, right? I mean, that's that's a tough situation. Can we really green the desert? We know it can be done. We'll take one look at how to do it from a permaculture standpoint with the guy I believe is the master of permaculture design, Jeff Lawton, today. Chef Keith Snow is going to teach us the how, what, and why of sourdough bread. Why is it good for us? How to make it? And uh, why we should consider it if we're going to be eating bread to be eating sourdough and we'll probably be hungry by the end of Chef Keith Snow's segment. Steve Harris is going to talk to us about rechargeable batteries and chargers and how to make sure we're using them the right way. Some stuff with some applications that, uh, on, for, your, for your devices uh, to go along with that and more. Steve Harris is always an incredible, incredible source of information on everything to do with energy. And today we're going to talk about energy in the small form of batteries that we actually can use to power all our devices in our homes when the power goes out because, well, somebody hit a pole or the shit has truly hit the fan. Next up, we're going to talk about, this is a question for me, for Michael and Sue LaPrise, coexistence with government schools. When you have a kid that you have to have in, co in government school, you, you prefer to homeschool, but you're in a situation in life where you just can't do it right now. This is personal for me because my son and my daughter-in-law live geographically where Us taking over doing homeschooling of their son is not practical. It would involve three hours of driving a day for somebody. And that's just not practical for their life, for our life, for anything. If they live next door, we would seriously consider doing it. On that note, that may change. So I also want to know from them, like, are there any issues with dealing with the state if you're homeschooling, but the child you're homeschooling is not yours? Let's say it's your grandchild. How does that work? So they're going to talk to us about that, because I know so many of you guys are in the same boat. So I think this would be a great question, and I had three for them this month, and they kicked it to the top of the list because it was for me. Uh, Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer out of Wyoming, is going to take, it, take us through how to make creamed honey out of your own honey, which I think is a really cool thing, It's something we haven't talked about before here, so that'll be great. And then Tim Glantz from Old Grouch Military Surplus is going to tell us about something they've got in the shop now called Parachute Repair Tape. Suggest you use it before you jump, 
But what else can you use it for? A lot of things. This is some really cool stuff, and as you might imagine, it's quite tough, too, and it'll stand up to a lot of things. I'm going to finish up the show talking to you about the song of the day today. I'll go ahead, and I usually don't tell you what it's going to be in advance, but today I will. It's called Wolves. I've played it before. It's by Garth Brooks. I'm going to ask some serious questions about that and how we can make a difference for the better in our world. Because remember, as a survivalist, while I am prepared for the shit that hit the fan, I also try to take the standpoint of being the fire marshal. While we can put the fire out once it starts, it would be better if we prevent it from happening in the first place. So that's what we've got up today. Next, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1771, and for those of you that know American history... Just to be blunt, shit is starting to get real. Uh, so I have today in the history segment for the year 1771 the following. Where are they today? And it's a look at some of America's key players in the American Revolution. Where are they at in 1771? I have Great Scott. It's Groundhog Day. Well, you can read that one yourself because uh, I'm not going to read that one today, but it's pretty cool. And I have The First Factory. And that's really interesting, too, but I'm going to read Where Are They Today. From Alex Shrugged on TSPWiki.com, for the next few years, the situation in American colonies will simmer. The embargo of British goods has lost some momentum as tariffs are rescinded and reduced. So let's look at where key people of the American Revolution are this year. Alexander, Alexander Hamilton is a 15-year-old bastard. He is also a bookkeeper of an import-export business in the West Indies. One of the partners is ill, so Hamilton takes over. He berates captains for not meeting their schedules. And they take it. This kid is going far. But there is no glory in bookkeeping, which causes Hamilton to remark, I wish there was a war, end quote. George Washington is 39 years old and has taken the embargo on British goods about as far as it can go. He is diversifying his farming from tobacco into wheat and horse trading. His slaves are fishing and raising chickens in order to feed themselves. He talks about the cause, meaning liberty, but not the revolution, yet. James Madison has graduated from Princeton at 20 years old. He hates the law, but Thomas Jefferson has sent him some interesting books on ancient Greece and democracy. Oh dear, Madison is getting ideas. Henry Knox has opened the London Bookstore in Boston. It features books on military tactics. Knox is 21 years old and a personable guy. John Adams will frequent the bookstore during the American Revolution. Adams will be the Secretary of War. And Knox will be a colonel and later a general for the artillery. These guys got started young, didn't they? I mean, the old, the old man there is Washington at 39. Alexander Hamilton is a bookkeeper of an import-export business at 15, and he's giving shit to captains and they're taking it. What are 15-year-olds doing today? I'm just saying, I won't even give you my take on this one. It's just an interesting piece of our history there, and one that we don't generally hear about in, well, those government schools, right? Okay, next up, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. 
One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. And with that, before we uh, take your first questions for the expert counsel here, I want to remind you that the Perma Ethos Plant Propagation on, uh, uh, pro Plant Propagation Course is on sale till the end of the month. The month is rapidly coming to an end. Uh, this is the 22nd, and this is a 30-day month, right? So you got like eight days left to get the $350 Plant Propagation Course for $250. Bucks. If you've been looking for a business to start, this is a course to take. There's four hours of calls that were never part of the course that Nick Ferguson and I did with the first students that took the course. That's all on audio. You can listen to it. Half of that is probably on the business concepts of running a nursery for profit. On the other hand, if you are looking to plant a lot of plants on your property or a property you're managing or something like that, you got to do this because you can't afford to buy them all. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And when you learn how to propagate plants, it is like printing money the real green form of money. So check it out today. There's a link in the show notes, the Plant Propagation Course. It is an incredible course. Nick did an incredible job with it. It will teach you everything you need to know to get started as being your own nurseryman or starting that backyard nursery of your own to make some money. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and take our first question of the day. This one is for Gary Collins. And again, it is on naturally increasing testosterone, Uh, from someone who's been doing well with their workouts but kind of plateaued and now has been diagnosed by blood test with low testosterone. So we're not talking about somebody here that's trying to be like the roided up guy at the gym that can't put his arms down or something and, bro, I want more testosterone. We're talking about somebody as you get a little older, you're, you know, you're, you're maybe not getting your diet totally perfect, you're not getting sleep, whatever. You start to have that lower testosterone level and it gives you lethargy. Uh, it has a lot of other effects and it also you know, kind of lets aging move a little faster. So, Gary, what can we do about that with all of this in mind? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and Brad has a question about how to naturally increase your testosterone levels. Brad has been following the Primal Power Method. Um, he got my books, and he's lost 25 pounds. He's training for a long-distance race, and he's doing well, but the problem is he's plateaued, and he's noticed fatigue and got his uh, blood test done. And it showed that it, he had low testosterone, and they told him he should get on androgel right away. And I'm glad he didn't. You do not. This is a tricky world. Uh, hormone replacement therapy has become very prevalent and popular recently over the, probably the last five years. And uh, TRT specifically to men, testosterone replacement therapy, is big business. Um, these guys are making big money off this. The doctors have caught on. You know that it's part of the anti-aging. Uh, increasing muscle mass, you know, obviously increasing sexual desire, all these things that uh, us aging men want to maintain or improve upon. Be, stay away from those synthetics. Women, too. Uh, it's very popular for women going through menopause. Here's the thing with the synthetics. All the studies I've seen and all the research I've done is it elevates your risk for cancer, especially in the area of prostate cancer and breast cancer. Now, there are alternatives to that, which is bioidentical hormones, which I'm not going to get into. But if you're looking to go that route or you have very low levels, that is the direction I would go. The bioidentical are considered 
closer to your body. They're, they're naturally made. They're not chemically derived. Most are from plant sterols. So that's where those come from. And that's what I would recommend. Now, when it comes to levels, that's where it gets tricky. Um, I have noticed that anyone that goes in to have this, I'm going to stick to males on this one since it's Brad, uh, Brad's question that every guy who goes into an anti-aging clinic or to a doctor who specializes in hormone therapy, everyone I've ever talked to comes back with low testosterone. And I know that's just virtually impossible. Remember guys, I used to investigate this stuff. So I have a very strong suspicion that these, uh, this testing is rigged and it's for business. Uh, let's face it, the medical field on, I'll be honest, on the natural side and on the, uh, you know, Western medicine side, the it's, man, it is just nasty. So you have to be really careful. With that being said, when he, he didn't remember what his testosterone levels were, but the, the considered normal range is anywhere from 250 to 1100 nanograms per deciliter. Um, so for your total testosterone, but for me, what I have found anywhere around below 400 is technically considered low. So you want to be, the normal ranges are somewhere for anyone, and it depends, could be 500 to 1,000. So depending where you fall in that, that is what are considered the normal ranges. Of course, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Um, also, for for free testosterone, the, the normal ranges are considered anywhere from, uh, I want to say, depending, but 35 to 155. So if you're in there, usually you want to fall somewhere in the middle is okay. But free testosterone is the marker you should actually really look at. That's the marker that is truer for, for blood testing. Here's another problem. As you guys know, I've talked about this before. Blood tests are a snapshot at that time. And I've gotten in arguments with people over blood sugar levels. Some of these ancestral health paleo people have battled me on this because a lot of them sell these really expensive blood tests that you should not be paying for. Um, you know, I've seen people pay 1200 bucks for a blood test through these knuckleheads. So be real careful there too. But with that being said, for you to get a true idea of where your ranges are, you can't just go in and get one blood test. It has to be multiple blood tests over time. And I would recommend breaking them up over a couple weeks or over a couple months if you want to get your true range to kind of see what's going on. I've had over the years some pretty erratic uh, blood test results that were just anomalies. I mean, I went back in and got tested and my levels were totally fine. So it just depends. It depends what's going on during that time. If you're going under high stress, you know, overtraining, maybe training for a marathon, that all that stuff's going to mess with your with your blood uh, levels. Uh, as far as markers, it's it's not an exact science. So always be careful with that. Now, how to naturally raise them? There's a couple things I'm noticing with Brad. I think he's overtraining for sure. He's talking. He's training six days a week. He's plateaued. He's suffering from fatigue. Those are Typical symptoms of overtraining. If I was him, I would knock down a training day, at least go to five days a week, maybe four days. Um, as you age, I like to see guys kind of knock their training days. I only train four days a week myself uh, with weight training and cardio mixed in. That's five days at the max. So I would like to see him cut back on his training. 
Also, if you're even if you're training for a long distance race, in order to increase testosterone levels, you need to have some sort of resistance training in there. What I mean by that is you have to lift some heavy things. That's the best way to put it. You know, bodybuilders have known this for decades. In order to grow muscle, besides the mass amounts of steroids most of them take, but you have to lift heavy. You have to use compound exercises that that put stress on your muscles in order to in order to build muscle, you have to increase testosterone. So you see where these two kind of go hand in hand, and that's where a lot of people get in trouble, especially distance trainers, is they never incorporate resistance training in with the cardio training. The, you know, there, there are two different muscle groups, fast twitch and slow twitch. Fast twitch are activated through heavier loads, and that increases testosterone and HGH. So always implement some resistance training in there. Women, too. Um, I train women very similarly to men. There's not a huge difference. Uh, when it comes to supplementation and food, you know, with foods, you want to eat, obviously, the paleo diet. Primal diet is a testosterone-boosting, hormone-correcting diet within itself. Avoid um, phytoestrogens, so you do want to not, you know, watch out for soy products. You shouldn't be taking, eating soy products anyway. That's a no-no in the paleo world. Uh, that's a legume, so stay away from it. Also, if we're using plastics to store foods, water bottles, those also have, uh, estrogen mimicking. So what you're doing is you're kind of fighting an uphill battle because these, uh, phytoestrogens or hormone mimickers actually increase estrogen. So you do not want to do that. That is going to inhibit your ability to produce testosterone. So with that, also my, my men's and women's total health package, those are geared for, for not only getting all your, your micronutrient levels back in check, but also it's to adjust hormones. And you guys who have read my books and my writings know hormones are the key. You got to get a balance. I talk a lot about you know, insulin levels and keeping your insulin levels in check because everything kind of starts from there. Well, in order to do that, you know, vitamin D3 is very important. That's one of the supplements in the package. That is the precursor to making sex hormones in the human body. So very important, you know, getting enough omega-3s to avoid all that inflammation, to control the inflammation. So these are kind of important, um, simple fixes now, if you do all this, and it takes a while, you know, I want to emphasize that as well. You know, just don't do it for 30 days and expect yourself to, you know, triple your testosterone levels. It takes time for your body to adjust. But with Brad, I, I think if he tries that, cuts down his training and implements some resistance training in there and also high-intensity interval training too, which is I've talked about. I have a blog post on it on my website at primalpowermethod.com is – it's where you elevate your heart rate for a short period, 30 to 60 seconds, have a rest period, elevate it again. That also has been found to increase testosterone levels. So I hope that helps. Um, it, it is a fairly complicated subject, but I wanted to keep it real basic. If you have any questions, make sure to hit me at contact at primalpowermethod.com, and you can do it at uh, also ask question in the, the show notes here, and uh, I'll try and get back to you. Thanks a lot. Okay, good stuff from Gary, and I think it's a very important issue, and I think the fact that he kind of brought up that every single person that's ever gone that he knows to any of these people were always told they have low testosterone is 
cause for concern and cause to at least kind of evaluate the information for yourself versus just trust. We have a, a tendency to trust anybody in a white coat anymore, anybody with any kind of symbol of authority, um, whether it's a title, whether it's a uniform, whether it's a lab coat, what have you. Um, and I think we need to start questioning authority, not always disbelieving authority, but at least questioning it and, you know, fact-checking and sanity-checking things. So good advice from Gary. Uh, next up, I have a question for Jeff Lawton. Uh, this, this is uh, a question about a desert uh, landscape. It's on a very shallow grade and uh, in a very rough part of Texas, a place I've been to a few times. Uh, Jeff mentions that there's a Google Maps coordinate that was provided to he and I and recommends you guys maybe take a look at it to understand his answer. I'm not comfortable giving out that coordinate because it's this guy's property, and he hasn't said whether or not that's okay. I don't think it would really matter. It's not likely anybody's going to go bother anything there. But what I've decided to do instead is just to inform you of the area. It's a very big area, but you can get an idea of the landscape with this. If you were to go to Google Maps and pull up Big Bend National Park, you would then see that Big Bend is kind of shaped like a like a V, right? Uh, or an upside, or a, a C pointing up, like a vase. And right in the middle of the vase would be a, a little town called Terlingua. And if you were to go northeast from there into the area where you're not quite past the outline of Big Bend but not into Big Bend, it's that area. So if you want to take a look on a map, it would be right around there. And uh, I would imagine this land was purchased because there's a lot of it for sale in the area. It's one of those places I look at often and go, man, if I live closer, I, I might even buy some desert land because it's very, very affordable out that way. Uh, if you go to Lands of Texas, you'll see stuff like for sale out in this area all the time. All the time for, you know, not a dollar an acre or anything like that, but pretty damn inexpensive. And it's a place where it's harsh, but you can pretty much do whatever you want. Nobody will bother you. So there's some appeal there. But can you actually make things grow using swale systems in something this harsh? And again, I recommend you take a look at the Google Earth image of the general area to get an idea of how harsh this place really is. Uh, let's hear from Jeff on that. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And my first question is from someone who's got a property out in the Texan Chihuahua Desert. And they've given me a Google map and a Google Earth reference. And I've had a look and it's some interesting country, a real interesting country. And uh, someone's been out there doing contour drains or, or contour swells and they've got a lot of trees growing in a lot of places around there so I'd, I'd definitely have a look on Google Earth, there's some real interesting stuff going on in that region I think there's a lot of runoff from hard surface rocks actually, that's why you're getting a sheet runoff we've asked a question about the landscape is only a 2% grade and, um, and will trees grow from concentrating rain on a single swale into a soakage-like pit? And that's definitely true. They definitely will. You can see that in reference on Google Earth there. You can see plenty of that sort of thing already going on. Um, they've uh, got one to two acres that they can concentrate towards a pit. Um, now, the reference page 352 in the Permaculture Designer's Manual, the work of Bill Mollison, and they want to set up a swale that comes to a soakage pit. Now that's kind of like a leaky pan dam, like a, like a like a, a, a leaky pond with a flat bottom in the middle of a swale. And that can be done in uh, a desert, and it works really well. They're estimating something like a quarter of an acre 
of a food forest, food garden type desert, food forest, food garden in the bottom of the pit. And they're wondering whether they can concentrate enough water in there. Um, and I think you can, definitely. I think it'll work really well. I think it'll be wonderful. You may have to kick it off with drip irrigation first because you're going to have really dry periods until you get your tree cover established. And you may have to start off with really good hardy legume trees because you want to fill that pit and the swales where possible with mulch. And you want to speed that mulch provision up. And you can do that with really hardy legumes. They've quoted here that the land has... Uh, quite a bit of bentonite um, in the in the soil profile with a sort of gravelly section, and um, they're worried that the clay is going to accumulate in the bottom of the swell trenches and the bottom of the swell pit, and that won't make any difference because the the, the clay content will hold more water for longer, especially once you've got it shaded and with quite a lot of organic matter added. So you really need a lot of legume trees first, desert hardy legume trees, and you want to chop them for mulch in the cooler, wetter time of the year, and so they can regrow and be the shade in the summer. And then you'll get all kinds of diversity of fruit trees that you can grow in amongst those, underneath those, replace them with fruit trees later on as you get your system established, and crops underneath. You can get all kinds of perennial and annual crops in amongst the system at the same time. They've also quoted here that Bill Mollison as stated in some of his videos, that you place swells at about 15 feet elevation drop between each other. Um, so they think they can only put one swell on 40 acres. Now, the thing is, that calculation is correct for hill country. But as soon as you get to something that looks flat to the eye, and 2% grade definitely looks flat to the eye, you change that to a distance that actually is a wind buffering and shade providing system especially in the deserts, in the dry land, where evaporation is so much higher than rainfall. So you're definitely in a desert. You're definitely in flat country. So you change that calculation from 15 feet elevation drop between swells to the distance that you think you can buffer the hot winds. Now, you want to do that to take the stress off the landscape, which really means taking, dropping the evaporation figure down you do that by buffering the wind and by creating extra shade so you pull in pretty close i reckon you might even go down to 60 feet to 80 feet in horizontal distance between swells that means you'll stack up a lot more moisture in the landscape and that'll gradually come on down in your big events and and fill your pit at the bottom which will stay damp longer as you've got soakage coming through the subsoil I think you're going to come up with a great system here. It's going to work fine. The fact that you've got gravelly, a, a sandy gravelly mix with bentonite is a, is a huge, a huge advantage because once you do the right thing and, and the right thing in these landscapes is to, is to aim towards an evaporation reduction design initially. Everything needs to be an anti evaporation strategy to start with. And nature gives you the indication of how that wants to replenish, and you can see that in your local environment, but you manipulate it to your advantage with the species that are of value to you, which are the nitrogen fixes to start with, leading to the food production species over time. And you can speed that time sequence up by just working with those kind of succession 
pioneering events. By speeding those up, you speed up and facilitate a creative event that favors what you want to do. Uh, I think a couple big takeaways from that for me are over and over I hear about, well, it's flatland, it's flatland, it's flatland. And again, unless you're at the, the salt flats, uh, you, there's no really truly flat place. So 2% water will move. And on compacted ground, it might move quite fast. And additionally, I would say a lot of times in these desert situations, even if you don't control all the land, if nobody else is doing anything with the water, eventually it runs towards you. And you're always designing toward a flood in the desert because you don't get much rain, but you get a lot when you get it. And even when it's not a lot, you get a lot of runoff because of the condition of the land. Another thing is that as important as it is to create shade environments and mulch environments, the wind blocking is critical. It's one of the main things that increases evaporation. So there's a couple takeaways there that I think all of us can use in our design, whether we're using swales or not. Next up, I have a question here for Chef Keith Snow. It's, it's basically, tell us about sourdough and why it's good for us and how to make it. So, Chef Keith, uh, make us hungry with sourdough bread. Hey, JR from Oklahoma. It's Chef Keith Snow from Harvest Eating. Wanted to address your question about sourdough bread. Now, this is something that I am extremely fond of. I've done a lot of research on, and I'm definitely a, a student of baking. Uh, I'm not a baker by trade, but um, I, I turn out some darn good loaves of bread. And I certainly have my uh, my attempts that don't work out so well, but that's that's part of uh, the thing that we call cooking and experimentation. Now, um, the sourdough thing is interesting because um, being somebody that has um, a certain fear of gluten, we'll just say that. A lot of people uh, these days um, worry about gluten, have problems with gluten, and um, I think there's a lot of evidence that the major problem with this stems from super fast uh, fermented breads or breads that uh, will be mixed, uh, kneaded, and risen and baked off you know, from start to finish inside of three and a half hours, something like that, like most commercial breads are, they're, um, they don't have any time to ferment. And when you're talking about a sourdough bread, typically a sourdough is going to be fermented a minimum of 15, but usually overnight, uh, sometimes 18, 19 hours. And what happens during this fermentation process is uh, the bacteria in there, when you say sourdough, uh, the sourness comes from bacteria that um, bloom or grow, and they usually are feasting upon uh, gluten and other structures inside of wheat. And the sour, that's coming from lactic acid because as they um, – Get happy with, with those, uh, those items for a long period of time. It gets more and more sour tasting. Now, there's been quite a bit of research, um, done in Europe and other places in the world very recently showing that bread that's fermented like this, that's, you know, it's flour and then it's a, a sourdough starter of some type and it's, um, mixed together and allowed to ferment overnight, you know, for a long time, like I mentioned earlier, most of the gluten content, sometimes over 90% of the gluten content is not present anymore. And this is because these um, friendly bacteria feed on it and break down the gluten. Now, they've done extensive testing on people 
um, not just that are sensitive to gluten, people that are diagnosed as celiac, they have celiac disease. And these people are able to eat this type of bread and suffer no problems. Now, a lot of you might be thinking, no, this guy's crazy. But this is research that's going on right now. And they're starting to sprout up bakeries. I know there's one in Canada um, that I researched. And they, you know, they do old world breads that are fermented a long time. And they've got tons of regular celiac customers, people that thought that they'd be doomed to a world of gluten-free bread. And uh, like many things, you know, like turkey bacon, for example, that is some, or tofurkey, this is some miserable crap. Um, it's it's not turkey, it's not bacon, it's, it's garbage. And gluten-free bread, um, in all but the very rarest cases, is garbage. Gummy, um, you know, when you eat cotton candy, that kind of nasty feeling. Most gluten-free breads, at least the commercial ones, are, are pretty horrific. And I've tried a load of different gluten-free uh, bread recipes. And everything that we love and cherish about bread is not present in that. So the long-fermented sourdough or artisan-style breads are, you're going to be hearing, mark my words, a lot more about them in the near future because people that um, suffer from problems with gluten are able to eat them. Now, uh, I think that would cover what's good for it is, again, that it's it's not a quick situation. If you look at the rise uh, in people's weight and just the general downward spiral of health, um, it's kind of coincided with a lot of this quick junk food bread products, everything from I mean, there's, there's zillions of them out there. So that's, uh, that would kind of address your question of why a, a sourdough will be better. Now, how to make it. Now, the first thing you need is a sourdough starter. And, and a lot of people get duped into buying, you know, the, uh, what would they call it? Like the gold rush sourdough packet. And you can buy little sourdough starter packets, you know, on Amazon, whatever. And you can add them to, to flour and water, whatever. And, and, Lo and behold, a, a culture will be established, but you don't really need that. And I've used those, and I'm not saying that they don't work, but there is plenty of wild bacteria. Every single breath you take, uh, floating in front of your nose right now, going up your nostrils, are wild bacteria, just waiting for something to uh, create a culture with. So to start a culture, it's very easy. You take four ounces of, and it can be any kind of flour, bread flour or all-purpose flour, um, just four ounces measured, not measured, but weighed. Four ounces of flour, four ounces of water. You just put it in a glass jar or a bowl. Um, you mix it together. You can just use a fork. Let it sit there uh, for 24 hours and then add another four ounces of flour, four ounces of water, mix it up again another day. And you just keep doing that day after day. And after about five days, you should have a, a strong enough culture going um, to make bread with. And you'll notice right away, you know, within a day, you'll start to smell, it'll start to look sour. And don't be freaked out by the look because sometimes people are like, oh, it's spoiled. It was left out on the counter. That's exactly what you want. You want this culture to develop. And if it starts to smell very sour, that means you've done something right. And it will get a weird color and a look kind of streaky and liquidy. And that's 
a beautiful thing. You just keep doing, adding that same amount of culture in there. And then by about the fifth day, sixth day maximum, depending upon some attributes of your kitchen environment, you'll have a sourdough starter that you can bake bread with. Now, what I'm going to do is provide Jack a link. It's to another website, and it has an exhaustive, absolutely exhaustive um, post on sourdough bread making with loads of photos and um, every single step documented. And, you know, this is something that I'd rather just have you look at this than point you to something on my, my website because this thing is extremely complete, and I think you'll learn from it. So just go to the show notes on this episode and on uh, the Survival Podcast, and there will be a link to that um tool for you to check out that that post on a website now um, as far as helpful kitchen tools for the task you know that this is pretty easy you really don't need a mixer or anything like that you need a couple of glass bowls I mean what I do have um, and I start all my breads with it is it's a simple little thing it comes from Poland it's actually like a, a thick wooden spoon and it has a weird looking thick wire it's not a whisk but it's got a, uh, I don't even know what it's called, uh, but it's got a, a weird little wire thing on it. And uh, I'll put a picture of that up on the Harvest Eating Facebook page, facebook.com slash Harvest Eating. You can check that out. And that's extremely handy for getting your doughs together. It cleans off easy. But you really don't need much, um, you know, anything fancy. Um, and then when I get ready to bake these breads, sometimes I'll make loaf bread and I've got some uh, special loaf tins for that. Uh, or I just bake it inside of a, uh, a cast iron Dutch oven, and I'll usually put a little bit of parchment paper in the bottom. That keeps it from sticking, and you take a um, bread that's been proofed, and you drop it in there, and this thing has been preheated and all that, and you can turn out a really terrific loaf. Now, one thing that you may want to consider is something called a baker's cloche, C-L-O-U-C-H-E. Now, this is a... Um, it's like a bamboo proofing basket, and you can find these by uh, searching on Amazon. And those are what help you achieve sort of that uh, artisan look because the when the bread proofs inside of the cloche, it picks up a certain shape. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful thing to learn uh, making bread and, and sourdough and artisan breads. And we make a bread that we ferment for about 15 hours, and uh, I make it probably twice a week. And I've got my neighbors or older folks in their 70s. I've got them hooked on this bread, so they uh, they really enjoy it. And I usually will bake some, like I said, once a week and have the kids run it across the street to them, and they, they really enjoy that. But, uh, yeah, definitely get into sourdough bread. I think you'll, you'll really enjoy making it, learning about it. It's a pretty fantastic uh, subject, and uh, those are the type of things that – Obviously, I'm I'm interested in food, but I'm also interested in science and learning and perfecting something that's ever so elusive, which is the perfect loaf of bread. So I think um, with what I told you and the link that you can find um, in the show notes for this, you'll you'll be well on your way. So thanks for calling in that question. And folks, um, send in more questions so I can answer them for you. And do check out my sauces and spices over at Amazon.com. Just do a quick search for Harvest Eating or Thoughtful Harvest. You'll find my spices and sauces that are now available in the three-ounce size. I appreciate all of your support. Take care, everyone. Jack, thanks for doing what you do, man. Later. Okay, great stuff. Um, a little bit of add-on to that. Uh, when he was talking about this Polish thing with a funky-looking wire, I'm like, I know what that is. 
It actually is called a dough whisk, and they're called Danish dough whisks. So I found one of them for you on Amazon. I've got a link to it. It's the only one I could find there. I'm not saying it's a great one. They don't cost very much money, but at least you'll know what you're looking for if you go check it out. On the bread cloche, uh, I did put a link to like just a, a lookup of that so you can find it because that might be something hard to write down while you're uh, driving or whatever. I also have a link in the show notes today to Chef Keith's stuff on Amazon, so you can find that there. And uh, the article he referenced on how to make sourdough breads, that's linked as well. So I try to provide as many resources as possible for you in the show notes so you don't have to worry about taking notes or stuff like that. I know a lot of you guys are listening on the go. Just make a note to yourself to check the show notes, remind yourself of what you want to find, and that's about all you'll need to do. Uh, next up, we turn to Stephen Harris for advice on rechargeable batteries like end loops, uh, chargers as well, and some technical advice. Uh, Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for an expert panel to answer your question. I have a short one here from Matthew. Matthew writes, I got sick of throwing away disposable batteries, so I just purchased the N-Loop batteries and PowerX charger you recommend on battery1234.com. It's also on solar1234.com. I topped off the charge and everything seems good to go. It, let me tell you a little something about the PowerX charger, <clears throat> excuse me, and the Panasonic N-Loop batteries. The PowerX charger is about the best charger you're going to get. I recommend you get the one that charges in two hours instead of one hour. It's cheaper, has a much smaller wall wart. Eight batteries in two hours is plenty of time, and it'll do it and lickety split for you. Plus, that's only two hours of charging time for a dead battery. If you're just topping them off, it takes a lot less time. It also tells you the state of charge of the battery with a little meter in front of every battery, in front of every battery, so you know how far along in the charge they are. Um, you just can't beat that combination. The Panasonic N-Loop batteries are in their fourth generation. They used to be owned by Sanyo. Panasonic bought Sanyo, so now they're, they're Panasonic N-Loop batteries. They can be recharged up to 1,500 times. I've got mine. They're still good after like four years and still going. Good buddy of mine, Harlan Meeks, who runs the Low Watt Living podcast, he's got over a hundred of these N-Loop batteries and he's had them for over four years and they are still going. They are the way to save yourself money on dispose, on regular disposable batteries. Uh, you will get your money back on these very quickly. The Panasonic N-Loops on Amazon through uh, battery1234.com, they have 3,359 reviews on the AA batteries. They have 4.7 out of 5 stars, which is an absolutely incredible Amazon rating. I just cannot tell you how many people have had so much success with the PowerX charger and the Panasonic N-Loop batteries. Get them. You will not be disappointed at all. And if you get my class, uh, How to Power Your House from Your Car, at solar1234.com, it'll tell you how to recharge these batteries infinitely off of the battery off your car so you have all the headlights, all the lamps, all the power you could possibly want in a disaster.
So Matthew asks, is it okay to leave the batteries in the charger plugged in when not otherwise in use? Does the charger recondition mode actually help older batteries? Yes, you can leave the batteries in the charger all the time. It'll keep them charged up and topped off. Not that the new nickel metal hydride batteries discharge a lot. There are old nickel metal hydride batteries, and then there are what's called low self-discharge or pre-charged nickel metal hydride batteries. There is a huge difference between the two. You want the Panasonic N-Loops uh, or any other brand that says pre-charged or low self-discharge. They will, the old batteries would literally lose like, it was either a percent a day or several percent a week. It was very high self-discharge, which means self-discharge means losing energy on its own just sitting there. So it, within a couple months, your batteries would be completely, completely dead. So you couldn't charge them up, put them in something, and then in a year go to them and depend upon them working. The new low self-discharge and pre-charge batteries, if you put it into flashlight and you go to the flashlight later and it'll say one year, it'll have 75 to 80% of its energy as when you fully charged it. So it'll be good to go when you need it. Of course, I always recommend topping off your batteries whenever you can. So uh, that answers Matthew's question. I have something else I'm going to fill in here for you. Um, in the spirit of Glenn Tate and Joe Nobody, who have both written absolutely awesome books on preppers, sometimes called prepper porn, uh, I have started writing a book. It's tentatively called The Knock at the Door at 2 a.m. It's about a family that has to take their bug out bags and bug out. And it started off as a short story uh, just for to help me sell my bug out bag video, which is at bugout1234.com. So I kind of wrote the story so you'd get the frame of mind of what it was like to bug out and what you might find yourself lacking in your bug out bag, which I completely cover in bugout1234.com. Go read the testimonials there if you want to know what it's like. Uh, Never mind my words. Read what other people said about it. I am humbled by what other people have said. So uh, in the story, my characters use an application on their smartphone called Glimpse. It's spelled G-L-Y-M-P-S-E. It's on Android and Apple. It is a GPS tracking application, but it's not something where someone can find out where you are willy-nilly. It's the opposite way. You use it to let people know where you're at. In Glimpse, you can just say, you, you can say, I want people to know where I am for the next four hours or the next 15 minutes or the next five minutes or the next hour. And you go through your contacts and you say, this email, this email, this uh, phone number, this phone number. And Glimpse will automatically send out emails and text messages with a link to a working live map of where you are. So if you're in a disaster, and in this case, the husband is separated from the wife, and the husband is traveling back, he's like eight hours away, his wife is at a shelter, she, you know, the cell phones aren't working good, so she sends him a glimpse message and GPS location, he goes, oh, honey, okay, I know where you are, I'm going to come to you since you're in the shelter. And he sends her a glimpse saying, this is where I'm at, so she can actually track him driving 
and Glimpse will update in real time as you move. So I can, it's, it's like an Uber map. I can see you on the way coming to me. But it times out, like I said, after four hours and you'd have to send another message. So it's not an intrusive tracking system that you have to be paranoid about. So anyways, I thought this might be a good little tool that could help you in your preparedness on your smartphone with other people in your life. Uh, with that, this is Steve Harris for the Extra Panel. For all you new people, I have tremendous stuff on energy, how to power your house from your car, how to store fuel, how to keep your refrigerator uh, and freezer cold with and without electricity, and even more. Go check out Stephen1234.com. It's all free, and you can listen to it with one tap on your smartphone. I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you. Good stuff on Glimpse, too. I mean, a lot of times we think about the gray man and being undetected, but in many situations what you're actually worrying about is other people being able to know that you're okay, where you are, get in touch with you, things like that. So yeah, just a, a great like little mini podcast there on a variety of subjects from Stephen Harris. Steve, thank you. You always do a wonderful job for us. Next question is my big question that I have for Michael and Sue LaPraise. Um I... I'm in a, a, a very big crossroads emotionally with this. I, as a grandfather, is soon to be a, a grandfather times two, as a, my, my son and my daughter-in-law will be having a baby girl this summer. And my grandson, now old enough to enter government schools, remember I refuse to ever call them public schools unless it's by accident ever again, to reinforce. And I'd like all of you guys to do that. If you, if you agree with the sentiment, please start using the term. And, and when people say, well, public school, say, oh, you mean government school, right? And let them try to defend against it. But with that, I don't want my grandson in government school. My son and my daughter-in-law are at a point in their life where I, I can't bail them out financially at this point. I have got to let them develop their own life. It would be irresponsible for me to financially make their lives you know, simple. Um, they've got to figure stuff out. They've got a baby on the way and what have you. And my grandson is now about to enter kindergarten this, this, you know, fall. And I, I, you know, while I wouldn't fix their lives for them, I would absolutely provide a venue, uh, for my wife and I to be his homeschool parents, so to speak, and get him involved with other groups locally. And I would do all that, but I can't, I can't. Because they're too far away. The geography doesn't work. So at least for the beginning, he's going to go to government school. So my first part of the question is, well, how do we maximize his learning while he's in government schools? And should the geography thing get fixed, what are the legal ramifications? How does it work when it's a grandparent doing the homeschooling? So Mike and Sue, what, what do you guys got on this one? I know it's complicated. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, Designing the Life You'd Love to Live. For the expert counsel, thanks again, Jack, for encouraging us to help people think about homeschooling. Here's today's question. Our grandson will start school this fall in kindergarten. We would love to homeschool him, but due to where our son and daughter-in-law live, it isn't practical, and they simply can't do it right now. What advice do you have for expanding his education at home and doing our best to make the most of the education he will have from a public school? Our thoughts are to spend a lot of time with him here and just teach him about things during that time without a lot of concern for what he is doing in school other than maybe some homework help. Additionally, it may very well be that he will do a few years of government school and that we will be able to act as his homeschoolers by first or second grade. 
Is there anything we should do to lay groundwork now, and what concerns may we have about homeschooling as grandparents, while as actual parents are working jobs, etc.? Thanks, Dorothy and Jack. Michael and I happen to be right at this question in our lives. We do homeschool our three-year-old granddaughter, and hopefully more as we get them. Children are the most valuable return of surplus on the planet, and having someone nurture them on a personal daily basis will connect them to life and relationships like school never can. Having your grandchild nearby gives you the opportunity to teach them the joy of daily living. Your thoughts about spending a lot of time with him and teaching him about what you're doing is exactly right. I would recommend you begin a marketing campaign, marketing yourself to your kids so that they see the rich full days your grandchild could be having with you and they want that enough for their children to make some changes. I like to send pictures to my daughter and the other young mother of the little guy I watch. Simple things like playing in muddy puddles or finding a giant frog, things they wouldn't be doing at daycare or school. In homeschooling, the bell never rings. Learning goes on from the time your grandson wakes up until he goes to bed. His parents just have to decide what they want that to look like. As grandparents, wanting to appeal to your kids so they will go out of their way to deliver the grandkids means it's important to keep the conversation going and to be intentional with the time you have with your grandson. As you think of ways to prepare, remember it's not about clearing the glass figurines so they don't get broken, but about creating a welcoming environment for both your adult children and your grandchildren. The number one thing we continue to work on with our children so that we can maintain relationship is communication and making sure they know how much we love them. You never outgrow that. As our kids grow up and get busy or move away, it's harder to find the time to connect in a personal way, but you have to figure that out. We let our adult children know what we're doing for holidays, camping, and other things so they know that they're invited, but don't pressure them about being there. So connecting and communicating with your kids will get you more time with your grandchildren. Preparing your mind and home for a small child when you've been out of that pattern for a while takes some time, but you don't have to have it all complete to start. It's like the rest of the journeys in life. You start and learn as you go. When my kids were growing up, they loved to go to my mom's house because she had a space for them that held books, crafts, games, puzzles, and other age-appropriate things. This kept changing over the years, but they could always count on there being something to do. And she didn't have a TV, so there was a lot of conversation around the games. She would also take them on adventures around her very interesting neighborhood, and they'd play at the park. My nieces that are in their late 20s were driving in Houston and realized they were by Mima's old house, and they drove over and sat at the park and talked about the adventures they'd had there with her. Building memories is about time invested, listening, and playing. Another simple thing to do at your home for an early reader is to put labels on things. Every time you use the item, you point to the word label that you've attached until the child can do that. Duck food, table, sink, or you can make labels for the plants. Have some age-appropriate flashcards and games out so the parents see them and starts recognizing your effort and that your home is a far richer environment than a sterile classroom. Homeschooling for the early years is less about curriculum or learning, reading, and writing and more about inviting kids into your life. Allow your grandson to be part of what you're already doing. This is where you'll invest a lot of time teaching. It will make your task take longer to start with, but over time, you'll have a partner in your projects. Our eight-year-old son, Jack, knows the difference between a combination square and a speed square, a jigsaw, a circular saw, and a table saw, because he's been my gopher for all types of tools. While building a deck for our pool, he helps me by using a power drill to screw in deck boards. Would it be faster if I did it myself? Absolutely. 
but he does a great job, and we will look at that deck for years to come and know we did it together, and he's learning a skill, construction, and earning a sense of accomplishment. You have to decide that your grandkids aren't a distraction to your task, but an investment in their future. It's also going to be important, if your grandkids are at your house a lot, to teach them to respect you and the things in your home. We use chores for this. We teach everyone to take care of our house at their age level and ability. We have chore cards for our three-year-old granddaughter now, and it really is cute how much she likes to go through them. Anything I have trouble getting her to do, I can put on her chore cards now, and we can't go to the next card until the tasks are done in order. For whatever reason, this very stubborn child really wants to turn over the chore card so she'll do it. Right now, when your grandson is coming over just a few times, you can still give him chore cards and have a reward of something like a game. The chores can be kind of generic, so they'll work on any given day, like help Grandpa with the task, help Grandma bring duck eggs in, empty trash cans, and then you can add things you know he can do on his own. Doing things on your own is what builds self-confidence for both kids and adults. As you begin to add these elements to your home, you'll find that you're preparing the ground for your homeschool adventure. Whether that ever works out or not, your grandkids will have the best memories of you, and they'll have skills that can't be taken away. The one thing you're going to need is energy. When we were 47 and 52, we adopted a 2, 3, and 10-year-old, and at that time, we didn't realize how out of shape we were. A 3-year-old grandchild is helping us to stay active also. Be prepared to be very tired when, when, start, when you start off. Begin the life you're already living and bring your grandchild into that. As your relationship develops further, you'll begin to see his interests and you can begin adding learning elements to that. This is a great opportunity to be the source for answers to a small child. Someone is going to teach them what's right and wrong, how the world works, and their role in it, and who better than you. When the time comes and you do get to homeschool your grandchildren... At, say, 8 or 9, you may want to start talking over with the parents a simple course of study, a math and writing program that can be filled in with the science around the property, and then Michael recommended this TSP wiki that has history that you might want to check out. While you don't need to agree on a model up front, you'll need to decide whether you're going to be the classical homeschool family learning Greek and Latin and doing lots of memorization, or the unschooler learning what shows up each day, or something in between. It's a great discussion to have. Then head out for some adventures. The grocery store is actually an adventure for a young child. They're full of questions and there are so many ways they can help. We also like to have an annual pass that we use two to three times a month to build memories, like to the zoo or to the children's museum. Grandma has taken out the kids to farmers markets to sell seeds they've harvested and other goods that they've made. We'd also encourage families to figure out how to live closer. Sue's mom is just across the field from us, and we have an old pool ladder that the kids go up and over the fence, then walk along the neighbor's fence to see Mima and Waylo. Mima waits for them, and everyone is so excited. Mima has special snacks and something new and fun she found, like chalk paint. Waylo has fun things to share also, like tarantulas, javelina skulls, and last week a squirrel that lost its battle with a transformer. Mima goes for walks with them and works in the garden with us and lets them work in her garden. Last week she bought a thousand ladybugs and they got to release them in her yard. Be the adventure. Then each day you get to spend with your grandson, be sure to tell his parents stories about the adventures he's had that day. 
While at the zoo with my grown daughter and her three-year-old, along with my eight and nine-year-old, I would point out to my kids how we were doing the zoo differently than the school groups running through. We go to the zoo regularly and aren't in a hurry. We stop where we want and spend the time we want at each animal enclosure. We bring stories to read and color the animals while other kids and groups rush through to get back on the bus. My adult daughter was listening to me tell them all of this to my eight and nine-year-olds about how lucky they were, and she said, "You brainwashed us." I said, "Not brainwashed. I've always told my kids how much fun they're having and how great their life is. Having your eyes open at a young age to the concept that freedom to learn has value, and to know what it looks like to have that freedom taken away from you—that's what I want them to know." The children of this generation have had the freedom to learn in a natural way taken away from them, and only the grown-ups in their life can get it back for them. What we'd like to help people think about is teaching kids to learn to love learning. Our adult children still love to learn; it's part of who they are. So think about how you can best incorporate this concept for your kids or grandkids. Thanks again, Jack, for this great opportunity, and I hope you all go out and have an adventure. Remember, when you're designing the life you'd love to live, filled with the joy of learning, the bell never rings. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise from HaloBySue.com, wishing you many great adventures. So I, I think maybe one of the things that didn't come through in my question is I was more concerned about legal concerns as a grandparent. Could the state Have an objection to the fact that his parents、um, have decided to homeschool him, and he's with us while they're at work, and I, that didn't really get addressed. And I'm, I'm going to assume, unless I hear back from Mike and Sue, that the basic answer to that is we didn't address it because we didn't get it because it's not a problem since they're doing it, but they're doing it with a three-year-old. They're not doing somebody that's the compulsory school age yet. So follow up with me, guys, if if I got that wrong. The the good thing is. Almost every single thing that they described as us interacting with our grandson is exactly what we're doing. I mean, it was like a, it was like listening to a day in the life when he's here and he's with us. He's with his grandmother more than me because I spend more time, you know, doing work in the business. But we do all kinds of things, everything from playing baseball to having him involved on the farm. We make him do his chores. When he wants to play games or play with some type of video or something like that, there's always an exchange. It's always an exchange of okay, you want to you want to go watch you know cartoons on the iPad for 20 minutes. Okay, then we're going to do 20 minutes of learning. Then you can go do that. And we go to places. We've taken him to the IMAX theater. He's gone to the farm to fork store with my wife. It's、uh, it's 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 like hearing validation for what we're doing and.、Uh, My hope is that we can be that resource in the future, and I guess another thing, it's really good that they kind of brought up the concept of marketing yourself to your adult children as being able to do this for your kids. If you're in my position, we don't really have to do that. I think they would do it in a heartbeat. I mean, a a millisecond if it was practical, and. But it's going to be up to them to figure out how to make the geography work out because we can't provide grandma and grandpa's bus service,、uh, bus service, not bus service, right?、Uh, so that's kind of the place we're at there.、Um, so anyway, great stuff from from a, this couple that's been doing this a long time and really、uh, does know exactly what they're doing from the, the amount of experience that they have.
Um, it's something I encourage all of you to look into your lives and see if it can be made to work. And it doesn't work for everybody. But I think the number one way we can take back our children from the state is to stop giving the state the opportunity to indoctrinate our children into statism. And that's what government schools are. That's exactly what government schools are. And um, I think that, in general, if we have the logistical capacity, almost anybody can do a better job educating a child than a government institution. Almost anybody. Let's take another one. This one for uh, Michael Jordan on making creamed honey. So what exactly is creamed honey and how do we make it, Mike? Hey, once again, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here. Welcome to the Survival Podcast, Expert Council. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. This question comes from Jason out of Oklahoma. He wanted to know how to make creamed honey. How do you make a starter if you do not already have one? Do you use a blender? How long can I expect for it to make? And uh, when do I add the flavoring if I want it flavored? Flavor ratio to honey ratio. Well, Jason, Elton Dice patented cream honey in 1935. He wanted to make honey that was kept forever, was easy to flavor, and would spread easy. So he came up with cream honey. You can look that up, and there's his background on it and how he did it and how he came up with it. To make cream honey is taking a seed or a starter of finely ground crystallized honey and adding it to liquid honey, making it more of a butter than something that is too runny or too hard to spread. Mostly you take a starter or seed mix. Seed mix is cream honey. You're going to use cream honey to make more cream honey. This allows the honey to crystallize at the same rate and not so chunky. Many people buy creamed honey from the store and use it as their starter. Um, you can look at many different varieties, but if you get a good starter, make sure that it's not flavored. Um, when you're all done, make sure you keep about a pound of it uh, around to make next year's creamed honey. If you catch the bottom of your honey starting to crystallize, dump it in a bowl and blend it. This will start making your creamed honey. Take a jar that is about a third or no more than a quarter that has started to crystallize. So when the bottom of the jar starts to crystallize, when it's about a third crystallized or a quarter crystallized, take it out of the jar and blend it. Whip it up. And this is a good way to start making your seed mix. You can also make a good or seed mix or starter by taking crystallized honey and heating it for a long time. And I mean for about a week at about 110 degrees. Now you can do a shorter time period and do it really quick at 140 degrees. But I hate the short method because you're going to kill off the yeast and the enzymes that you may want in the honey for medical value and the reason people mostly want to hear when it's raw. You want to take this honey after you've got it down to, you know, over a week at 110 degrees, pull it out of wherever you're, you're resting it. Um, heat lamps work good. Uh, dehydrators work the best. But you want it to start to cool to about 80 to 85 degrees. Now remember as a quick note, for those of you who tried my powder honey, this is how I get it started. So when you get it cooled down to about 85 degrees, you do not want this uh, honey to get liquid in form. 
and, and, and overheat. Like I said, you want the crystallization just to start to melt where it's like a, a thick goo. And you want to whip it and mash it down the harder crystals to where it's more of a cream. When you see that it's about the crystals are not as large and it settles out, uh, you kind of see where it creams out of what you're looking for. And you've just made another starter seed mix. Now, now that you have your seed mix, most people like to use the blender because it whips it and gets air in there and it uh, makes a good creamier mix. Uh, but you can use a spoon in a mixing bowl, mixing your honey with the cream honey together. Blending this mix, you know, you let it sit after you get it all blended. You let it sit to five to eight minutes, letting it settle out to see what you've got. You do not want to dump your 10 pounds of honey in all at once. You want to add three to four pounds at a time until you've gotten your 10 pounds of creamed honey. As I said, this takes about five to eight minutes to set, and you got to make sure this is kind of what you're looking for. You can, you can do anywhere from uh, more starter to more honey. You're looking for consistency of butter. Now you add your flavors to it after it's set for about five to eight minutes. I love to add cinnamon for the medical values to go with the honey, so add about a cup to ten pounds of mix. If you're using essential oils or flavoring oils, like raspberry or cotton candy, you use like an eighth of a teaspoon, and then you add more to taste after you've whipped it all up. Uh, that way you're not keep on adding more honey and starter to blend out the overdose of flavor. So start off small with about an eighth teaspoon to ten pounds, whip it, give it a taste. If it's something you want to add more of the flavor to, add a little bit more and whip it. After you've done that, let it set for another five to eight minutes. So it'll resettle, and then you're about ready to pour in containers. Now, when you're going to do your mix, you're adding 10% of starter to a maximum of 20% to a mix, and this is done by weight. So if you're going to make 10 pounds of creamed honey, you're going to add one pound of this seed starter or creamed honey. So here's the whole formula. is You're going to take your seed starter, and you're going to dump it in a mixing bowl. You're then going to add three to four pounds of your of honey to the seed starter and whip it. You're going to keep whipping it, adding three to four pounds until you've gotten ten pounds of mixture. When you've got this mixed and you've got it blended really good, you're going to let it sit five to eight minutes and let it settle to see what it looks like and if it's the consistency you like. If it's the consistency that you like, then you're going to pour it in the container jars that you want and it's going to sit for around two weeks to a maximum of three weeks to get it to where it's like butter. Now, if you're going to add your flavors to it, you're going to add your seed starter, three to four pounds of honey, until you've got it to 10 pounds. You're going to let it sit five to eight minutes to let it settle, and then you're going to add your flavor contents to it. You can even use herbs or spices as well as just using maybe cinnamon or even adding the, the oils and uh, flavorings to it. It's okay to throw in some stuff like that. It's okay to throw some chunks of raspberry in it and stuff for a little more contour. But you have to remember, anything that you add to it causes the honey, if it doesn't blend out very good, to start to ferment. That's why people mostly use oils for flavoring. So after you've added your flavor and whipped it, let it set for five to eight minutes again to see if it's kind of the flavor you want and the kind of creamy... Uh, 
a looking liquid that you want. If it is, then you pour it into the jars and again let it set for two to three weeks. This will turn out to be a nice butter after it solidifies. You want to keep it in a temperature of about 56 to 59 degrees over that two week time period so it solidifies the way you want it to. After that, remember this can last forever just like honey does. Like I said, the only time you have to worry about fermentation is adding water to it or something that will start the catalyst for fermentation. Uh, this is probably the easiest way I can tell you how to make your uh, creamed honey, uh, how to make a starter, how to add flavorings to it, and how to age it. Like I said, it's going to take two to three weeks to age it, and your processing times are about five to eight minutes in between intervals of of adding your flavors and putting it in your containers. Uh, there's all kinds of flavored ones out there. Feel free to go to your local health food stores, bread baskets, places that may sell creamed honey. Taste what you like. And then uh, grab some uh, creamed honey that's off the shelf. And maybe you're already getting it from a beekeeper that you respect. Take it home. If you got a pound of it, the next thing you know you're turning that pound of creamed honey using it as your seed starter, to making 10 pounds. When you always do this, make sure you bottle up a one-pound jar of it to keep to the side for yourself. This is a great thing to use. You can use it on toast. You can put it on uh, any types of breads for a taste. Some people are now using it as uh, coatings and marinades for meats, adding different textures. It works really great for your honey glazed, uh, glazed hams. So those are some things I want you to think about when you're using it. You can use it for many things. Uh, even uh, some people are now blending it down and uh, making it as their starter for gummy bears. Adding that type of honey to the glutens and making little gummy bears with them. So you can get your flavors and stuff all set in before you even make little things like that. So I just want you to remember, this is a good topic. Jason... Uh, I, I believe I know who you are, man. Uh, good luck on your adventures, and you've been doing a lot in beekeeping. So hopefully that we hear back from you on your adventure of making creamed honey. And we hope to see maybe some different flavors from you to get them out on the market. This was a good sell at a lot of good little venues, farmers markets, and even trying to maybe get it into bulk sell into your local Walmart would be really cool, competing with some people that haven't even seen it. As always, I am Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here in Cheyenne, Wyoming, telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy things from a cottage industry, because we all had to start someplace. And always help your fellow man, because one day you might need help too. Okay, last question is for Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus. Following Tim on uh, Facebook, I noticed they recently... I put out some information on uh, military parachute repair tape, and I thought this is something this audience would love and really should know about. So, Tim, tell us all about military parachute repair tape. What is it, and what can it do for us? Hey, Jack, and all the TSP listeners out there. Tim Glantz here with Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an answer for Jim, who is asking about the uh, new repair tape I've got in stock. And what this is, it's actually... Repair material made for repairing parachutes for the military when they had small holes in them. 
What they did is they took the standard ripstop nylon parachute material. You know, it's a really lightweight ripstop, very strong material. Put an adhesive on one side, put it on paper so you peel it off and stick it just like you would a, a lot of different repair patches. Except this stuff is a lot stronger than most other repairs. And why this stuff is so great is it will stick to virtually any fabric out there you can you can use. The only thing it won't stick to is anything that's been oil-treated or silicone-treated, like your sil nylons. But if you take a small piece of this and throw it in your pack, uh, you, you're out there and you rip your Gore-Tex jacket, uh, you can patch it up really quick. You rip your tarp, you rip your tent, you rip your poncho. Uh, I've had customers actually repair Jeep tops with it when they ripped them out instead of having to come back with a hole in their Jeep top. And the way you use it, uh, you take it and uh, you cut it to a piece where there'll be at least a one inch or so uh, overhang on every side of the hole. If the hole is bigger than an inch, if it's smaller than that, you need about a half inch. And you cut two pieces as long as you can access both sides of the material, uh, which is ideally what you want to do for the repair. You cut two pieces. You cut them rounded. Don't ever cut a square edge on a repair tape like this. You cut it rounded. Because if you leave a square edge or a square corner, that's where it's going to start peeling up and failing from. So you cut it rounded. You singe the edges of it with a, a, a lighter or any kind of flame real quick because it is nylon and that will keep it from fraying. You take one piece, put it on one side. You take another piece, put it right on the other side, press them together so that through the hole or the rip or the tear, they actually make contact in the center. Press it in place and bam, you're done. Uh, I've used it for lots of stuff. When I first got a sample of it, I wanted to test how durable it would be, so I cut about a one square inch piece, put it on my leather leather holster for my everyday carry pistol. Uh, that's a year ago, and to this day, that, that piece is still on that leather. Now, it won't stick that well to everything. I'll go ahead and tell you, some materials it sticks better to than others. It actually surprised me that it's on that leather a year later. I've repaired pants uh, where I ripped the uh, butt out of them when I was out in the woods. Took it, put it together. It got me out of the woods. Uh, you know, the rest of the day I was able to keep working without my butt hanging out. So that alone paid for that. Uh, I did try washing it on that, and it stayed okay, but it started to lift. Uh, I washed it a second time, and it finally failed. Uh, had I taken a sewing machine or even hand-stitched uh, a seam around that and actually sewn that on there, I imagine I'd still be washing it to this day and it'd be on there. But the stuff is great because it lets you uh, repair anything quickly and easily without sewing. So if you've got it in your pack, you know, it's it virtually there's no weight to it because it's just, you know, really lightweight parachute material. The paper backing they put it on actually weighs more than the material. But you can repair any of your gear when you're out on the move. Um, I've even got a customer that bought uh, he bought a whole yard of it from me and, and recovered the whole bottom of his leather seat on his car because it's just his work vehicle now and he didn't want to pay money for a new seat. And uh, about six months later, he showed it to me and it's still rolling strong. So uh, it's very handy stuff. It's stuff that I think should be in everybody's uh, it definitely in your go go bag, your get home bag, your bug out kit, whatever you call it, because it, it lets you fix stuff. But also run the homestead because you can salvage and repair all those pieces of material, you know, anything fabric that gets ripped or damaged that may have otherwise not been economically repairable. It gives you a good way to patch it together and keep on rolling, especially with things like tarps uh, where you, you might get another six months to a year out of a tarp. And if you can do that two or three times, uh, you've saved a lot of money over the long run. 
So check it out. I'm going to send a link for Jack to put on there. Uh, and I've got a couple of videos up on it on our Facebook page, so check that out as well. Uh, you can find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Deals, and, of course, our regular website at oldgrouch.com. Hope that helps, and I uh, hope you all take a look at that stuff because it really can be very handy for you. Thanks a lot. It's already been ordered and on the way and going to become part of all of my packs. I'm, I'm sold on it. And I was before uh, I heard that. And I made sure that question got to Tim this round because I wanted you guys to know about a, a really great utility tool that you can have in your packs. I mean, I, I bought a bunch of it. I'm going to keep some in the uh, glove boxes and things like that. I mean, just an, an awesome uh, you know tool. It won't fix everything, for sure, but... Um, really affordable and uh, really durable. And uh, if they if they trust it with a hole in a parachute, uh, that, that just tells you something. So as we wrap up today, I want to remind you guys you can help support this show by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive benefits only available to members and discounts that will more than pay for your membership. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. Remember, first responders, uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, etc., all qualify for a discount. Email me with TSP service discount in the subject line before you join, and I'll send you the discount code to save you more money on an even uh, already great price product. Uh, next up, uh, I want to tell you about the TSP Business Directory uh, supporter of the day. That would be JC Custom Slings. They provide nylon three-point traditional two-point slings for all popular rifle and shotgun models. JC uses polymer buckles, which are lighter, quieter, and have a better bite than metal. You can check out JC's listing at the TSP Member Directory, and I'll have a link in today's show notes as well. And remember, if you want to do business with other members of the community like JC or be found by other members that want to do business with you, you can become a member of the directory for as little as 5 bucks and eventually get featured on the show just like this for as little as 5 bucks. Uh, you can learn more by going to just tspbiz.com, tspbiz.com. It's just a part of the survivalpodcast.com website, but I just did that to make it easier for you. Talking about making it easier for you to support the work we do, how about this? If you're going to buy something on Amazon, go to tspaz.com. Type in less letters. You'll end up at amazon.com. Buy whatever you were going to buy anyway and help support the show. How easy is that? That's a great way to help support us. With that, I want to kind of wrap the show up today with kind of a, a message for you guys. As I said at the beginning of the show, I am going to uh, – play the song Wolves for you today by Garth Brooks. I think the only other time I played this, I, I didn't link to the video in the show notes. I forgot to, and I didn't even tell you who it was by. And I had a lot of people going, who was that? Because as, as well known as Garth Brooks is as a musician, he's known mostly for the top 40 stuff that got on the radio, right? That That's that's the stuff that Garth's known for. He has some deeper songs that really never got in the mainstream play, that they deserved, and you, you might wonder why when you listen to this song. Uh, I'm a person that has a real affinity for wolves. I do, I, the actual animal wolves. But I also know what a wolf does when it kills, and how it kills. And it's not pretty, and it's not the Disney view that we have with movies and stuff like that, especially larger animals like cattle. It's a, it's a pretty bad thing, and it's... It is the sick and the weak that the wolves pull down, and that's that's nature's way in those ecosystems. But this song kind of talks about it from that viewpoint moving into humanity, and it's about the way the wolves, the predatory wolves, that are the banks 
pull down families in America, especially in small towns and farmlands. And it's a very deep moving song. And the video I have linked to today actually names a bunch of families in, you know, the Bank of America basically took the farms away during the economic recession of 08, 09. And I, I think I've come a long way in my personal view of, of this whole thing with mortgages and banks repossessing homes. Like many of you, I believe in keeping your word. I believe in doing the right thing. I believe that when an adult signs a contract with another entity, they should keep their word. But I also think that the contract should be understood, and I think a lot has been done to confuse people as to what exactly a mortgage is and what it actually means. And that we might view it differently and be more cautious if we were aware of what a mortgage really is. A mortgage is the creation of capital by the promise of another party to pay. Now, it actually comes from the words mort as immortality engages grip. It actually means the grip of death. That's the root of the word. But in our modern day, that's what a mortgage is, is it is the, the creation of capital. In other words, the creation of money on you, your promise to pay. So our belief is that when we go to a bank, in general, our belief is as a society, and we say to a bank, I would like to buy a house. And they say, okay, fine, with some small down payment, some other things, we will basically take the house as collateral to the loan, and we will give you the money. And then you can use that money to buy the house, that goes to the seller, and then you pay the money back, as though they've actually given you the money. But the banks don't loan you money. They create money when they make the mortgage. I don't want to get too deep into this. You're going to have to trust me. You can just Google or, or go to YouTube and put how is money created by banks in the YouTube and see all kinds of stuff about this. But the basics are this. You think the bank, if it has to keep a 10% reserve to keep things simple, if they had a million dollars, they could loan out $900,000, right? And then they keep 100000 in reserve. And they actually loan out money that they have from other parties. That's not how it works. The reserve is the total holdings. They can load out against the total holdings. So a bank that has a million dollars, of course they all have way more than that, but had a million dollars, would then be able to loan out $10 million, actually $9 million keeping a million in reserve. The total, the total there in the pool then being $10 million. Now how would they do that? Ask yourself, okay, I have a million dollars, And you come to me and say, I want to borrow $9 million. I say, okay, here you go. In fact, I, they can actually got that wrong. They can loan you $10 million because then they're holding a million. It's 10% of the loan. Okay. So how could I possibly, if you came to me and said, Jack, I want to borrow $10 million. Bucks, I said, sure, you're a good bet. Here's $10 million. If I only had a million, where do I get the 10? Well, I can't do it because I'm not a bank. What a bank actually does is it makes a journal entry that creates $10 million in new money against their $1 million reserve. Meaning you have become the creator, the creator, the method of creation, the vector of creation for the bank. And your promise to repay the money is what creates it in the first place. Now, if you wanted to design a predatory monetary system, I don't know that you could do any better than that. And that's what this song's about, about the predatory nature of the monetary system. And I also want to tell you that I released a video today that was an excerpt of 
the, the piece I did yesterday on anarchy. How would we deal with a threat like ISIS in an anarchist society? And I, I did a, you know, a response to that yesterday, so I won't repeat it. But I got a lot of feedback from it saying, that was really good. I never looked at the problem that way before, and you should make that standalone. So I figured the best way to make it standalone is put it into a simple video and throw it up on YouTube. So that, that went up this morning. And I do want to say this, though, to people that are libertarians and anarchists in this audience. So I think it's a far, you know, pretty large number. We do have an obligation, if we are to create a society as free from the state as possible, to think about things like, well, how do you create a system that isn't predatory? Now, winners should win and losers should lose. I, I believe that. But that doesn't mean that the person loses. There's no one there to help pick them back up. I, I think what society has done with government is instead of creating a safety net, they've created a hammock. Right? A safety net doesn't guarantee your safety, it helps. It's more likely that you'll be safe. If you fall off the trapeze at the circus, you land in the net, you could still break a bone. You could still get hurt, but you're less likely to hit the concrete and die. right? And then when you fall into the net, you don't just hang out in there. You get the hell out and climb back up and get back on the trapeze. right? That's a, that's a safety net. A safety net is to prevent the impact, not a place to live. And government has created a place to live, and it has thereby actually sponsored poverty. It has subsidized poverty. If you sponsor something, if you subsidize it, if you reward it, you get more of it. We should be rewarding success. We should be putting success on sale. That's how you get more of something. But it doesn't mean everybody's going to succeed. And you, you, you have to wonder if there would be a way to create a new monetary system. Like I said, I've said before, Bitcoin's a great start. But a new monetary system of exchange that's not, not predatory. It does require people to keep their word. It does have recourse if that's not done. But it's not designed to be a wolf that pulls down the weak. Just a thought. And I think there's many places that those of us trying to build parallel systems to government to replace and make government irrelevant. Because remember, our goal is not to occupy government. It is not to take over government. It is to, it is to render it functionally useless. It's to serve as its gravedigger. That's my belief. And if we are going to do that, then what we're replacing it with should be a better system not just a more free system. I believe we can do that if we choose to. And unlike nature, where the wolves are simply there to take out the weak and make another group of animals stronger, we as human beings have intellectual capacity, thought, and compassion. And I believe we can use those things to help make everybody stronger and give everybody a shot. It doesn't have to come through government and welfare. I believe if government would get out of the way, most of us are compassionate enough to do what we can to help enough other people to really make a difference. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. January's always bitter, but Lord, this one beats all. The wind ain't quit for weeks now And the drifts are ten feet tall 
I've been all night driving heifers Closer in the lower ground Then I spent the morning thinking About the ones the wolves pulled down Charlie Barton and his family Stopped today to say goodbye They said the bank was taking over The last few years were just too dry And I promised that I'd visit When they found a place in town Then I spent a long time thinking About the ones the wolves pulled down your reasons for each and everything you do But tonight outside my window There's a lonesome morning voice I know And I just can't keep from thinking About the ones the wolves pulled down Oh, Lord, keep me from being The one the wolves pulled down